Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Pam McKinnon, who is the artistic director of ACT in San Francisco. Pam McKinnon is Tony winner. We're going into her second year, and this year she is directing two plays in the season, I guess one at the Geary and one at the Strand. In coming in to ACT, obviously you can anticipate most everything. What came up that you didn't anticipate, both good and bad? So I've been the artistic director for 14 months. I was really fortunate in that I, even before arriving, so from my announcement to when I actually arrived, so that was January 2018 to July 2018, we put together a season. So, you know, quite often in a transition from one artistic director to another, the incoming artistic director inherits a season to then be responsible for to produce. But that was not the case. So my first test balloon was last season, a season that I curated. So a rare happenstance in American theater um, for an incoming artistic director. So I feel, you know, really excited now stepping into season two about building on that. What was exciting to me about last season well, even even just like here's a here's a little microcosm of it, you know, to have a wonderful director like Tamala Woodard direct last season a production of Men on Boats and do, I think, this spectacular job with a new play that is playing with form, building an ensemble in putting together this year's season. She came to like like she popped in forefront of mind because I needed someone to tackle Carol Churchill's big ensemble play. And, you know, to get to be, I mean, one of the most joyous things as an artistic director, I've been a freelance director mm. for 25 years, but now an artistic director is to make marriages and give fellow artists opportunities that they don't normally get. And so to have a stage, a theater like the Geary, so this thousand seat Broadway jewel box playhouse outside of the 10 by 10 block neighborhood called Broadway in New York, just a fantastic, I think, producing gift to younger artists who are absolutely, you know, and I'm not saying younger by virtue of age so much, like where are they in their career to get to play at that scale, which used to be a scale that directors played at often, especially men, but now to get to like, like share that, you know, as a way of building storytelling muscle in the field. So that feels super exciting to go from one season to another, having learned a lot. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to learn about the audience, continuing to go to other theaters, um, like Shotgun Players, like Cutting Ball, like Custom Made, like Berkeley Rep, you know, and, and, you know, and sit in those audiences. Are they different from AC? I don't even know yet, but I'm learning. I'm learning a lot. What I noticed in the past is that there was a pecking order with Berkeley Rep, Theater Works, ACT at the top, 
And if they pass, then the next tier and the next tier. Is that going away then? Are we seeing more cooperation, you think? Absolutely. There's a lot of discussion about how not to think about competition and scarcity, but to think much more explicitly, not just think, but actually act explicitly about synergy. You know, so for instance, there are going to be four Carol Churchill productions this season across the Bay. So ACT with Top Girls, but there's also Custom Made, The Magic Theater, and Shotgun Players. So ACT reached out to these other theater companies in conversation, you know, recognizing that we're diving deep into this amazing brain of a playwright, we've created something called the Churchill Pass. And as a holder of the Churchill Pass, then show up at any one of those four box offices of that theater and say, let me in, give me your, you know, give me your best seat. So that feels really exciting, you know, and it, it's, it's piggybacking on what we did last season, ACT and the Magic Theater, working with Infanisa Adofia on two plays of hers that were directed by the same director about the same characters, but jumped in time 20 years. And there was a moment in the Bay where audience members could see this family story about Nigerian American, you know, how much, you know, how can you maintain your Africanness and your Americanness? And, you know, it's sort of, it's almost like it's a play that isn't about assimilation. It's about holding both. And this great family play cycle there was a moment when you could see both plays back to back, like on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. Come to ACT, see, you know, chapter five, go to the Magic Theater the next day to see chapter six. There was like a binge watching, you know, so I feel really excited about that. You know, I'm super excited. You know, uh, Joanna Feltzer is now at Berkeley Rep. I've known Joanna for more than 20 years when she was a producer at New York Stage and Film. I worked there frequently as a freelance director developing new plays. She was actually the first person when she was associate artistic director at ACT. She brought me in to develop new plays at ACT. I'm excited to be in conversation. I mean, I, you know, and, and, and I think audiences consume stories in, you know, now in a way where they want to, you know, explore a theme in depth, or they want to explore an author that they respect and go have like multiple opportunities to dive in. And I feel like the Bay Area can be responsive to that. Is this partly because of Pam McKinnon, or do you think it would be happening just in general? It certainly is a mission of mine. I mean, I feel, you know, stepping into, you know, a, a, a cultural and arts leadership role, it feels counterintuitive to me as an artist first to say, this is my lawn and you're not allowed to do, to do that thing. I mean, I would much rather say, wow, you're doing that? Let me think how we can complement that. Let me think how we can partner. We talk a lot about, and our audience tell us, it's getting harder and harder to just get around. I mean, we talk a lot about traffic, right? So, you know, for instance, um, I'm directing a world premiere of a cricket play called Test Match. And we're partnering with a smaller theater called Enact Theater down in the South Bay. And they program specifically South Asian stories. And this is a cricket play. It is also about British imperialism in India. It is about Team England, Team India, sort of a rain delay contemporary setting. And then we zoom back in time to sort of unpack the history 
of these two countries. And we're partnering with this smaller theater because the artistic director and I had a great conversation. She believes that there are some audience that frequent her theater that would be interested in this. We're going down to do a reading of it, you know, in a black box theater in front of an audience that in part they've brought in, but also we're bringing in some people because we have audience from the South Bay as well. You don't always have to come up to San Francisco and brave the traffic, find parking. You know, we can at times bring the stories to the South Bay. I recognize that we have audience, like at times that is asked to drive 75, 90 minutes to come in to see a play. And when we can, you know, I'm excited to really share information and excitement ahead of time so that there is that, you know, that kind of like necessity to get on the highway. That brings up a question. Uh, last year, there was a August Wilson play that played in Marin, it played in Oakland, mm -hmm. and played in three or four different places. Eventually, could you see an ACT production, say, in the South Bay? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I'd, I'd, I'd be excited to explore that. I mean, the artistic director of Cal Shakes, Eric Ting, is going to direct a production for us later this season. And um, I've also known Eric for a lot of years when he was on the East Coast. We have talked about doing a co-production of a play in the future that would start at Cal Shakes in one form or another. And then later in our season, it would be like a mini tour. A mini tour, you know, with, with with a lot of the same elements, but some different elements because our theater, our, our footprints are so different. But you know, I you know, I think that's exciting, and I you know, I imagine there there would be some audience that would want to see the evolution of it, and other audience that would do you know a one off and a one off. Pam McKinnon, let's talk a little bit about the previous season. Certainly, for me at least, certain shows stood out. Sweat by Lynn Nottage stood out. Seascape by Edward Albee, I thought was phenomenal production. Thank you. And Rhinoceros, yeah, nice. which it seems to me, maybe when you planned it, you were hyper aware of where the country was. But when it was produced last spring, it seemed even more relevant than ever. Ionesco's Rhinoceros, unfortunately, kind of never goes out of style. It keeps on coming back. I mean, you know, in fact, when he was writing it, all his friends were becoming Nazis. And by the time it was produced, all his friends were becoming Stalinists. So even in the time from like conception to production, people went from fascism to, you know, totalitarian communism. This came about, I am good friends with one of the lead actors in it, Matt DeCaro, who's a Chicago-based actor. I've worked with Matt several times. And when, I when it was first announced that I got this job, he reached out to me to say, Pam, I am in something really special at Oslo Rep in Florida, directed by Frank Galati. You have to come down to see it. And I said, Matt, I believe you were in something really special. It sounds fantastic. He sent me some great photos. I said, I am way too busy to come down and see it. But then I got to talk to Frank Galati. I, I read his adaptation of it, which had some really smart edits. And the Ionesco estate gave him sort of carte blanche to do what he wanted to. And Frank and I talked about, yeah, putting it in as the seventh show of the subscription season. And um, yeah, you're right. To go from like sweat, which was actually written in like what 2014 and incredibly prescient 
And then to end the season with Rhinoceros is this, yeah, this huge sweep of how artists wrestle with political terrain and, yeah, dangerous territory that I feel this country is experiencing right now. How did Vanity Fair come about? I'm a big fan of Kate Hamill's adaptations. She has been taking these big books, Vanity Fair being one of them, but also Sense and Sensibility, and making them these really live, very actable, smarter than romp, but there's a rompness to it. That was the one play that was already sort of in the pipeline. You know, I mentioned that as a new artistic director, a really frequent handoff is you get a season and now you produce that season by virtue of the fact that it was a co-production, meaning it we were in partnership with Shakespeare Theater in D.C. There was some intent, there was some planning between these two organizations. What really excited me about it was that there were opportunities for our MFA conservatory students in it, and also recent grads, recent graduates of our MFA training program, and that this well-known book was activated. Now, Men on Boats was your first production at The Strand. How did that come about? 25 years ago, when I first moved to New York, I fell in with a group of theater makers that were recent graduates of UC San Diego, the MFA program at UC San Diego. And they wound up creating a company that produced new American plays called Clubbed Thumb. 25 years later, Clubbed Thumb is alive and well. They're celebrating a big anniversary this year, obviously, 25 years. They're a downtown company. Um, their mission is to develop and produce funny, strange, and provocative plays. This last season, they garnered a Tony nomination because they were the originator of Heidi Schreck's play, What the Constitution Means to Me. And I, entering New York, um, I'd never studied theater. I was sort of a self-proclaimed director with very few credits. But my friends turned to me and said, direct for us. I directed, I think, seven of their first nine productions and built up that new play love and big interest in working with playwrights as they're finding their way through a story. So I knew in my first season, I wanted to have Club Thumb somehow represented, and Men on Boats had been a big hit, first at their Summer Works Festival, which is an annual festival, and then also as a co-production with the off-Broadway company Playwrights Horizons. And Jacqueline Bachhaus is um, a younger playwright. She right now has something running at Playwrights Horizons. Um, a younger playwright from Arizona. I was also really interested, not that Arizona's California, but this Western story. Here I am moving across the country, and this play, Men on Boats, formally inventive, coming from Club Thumb, and a, sort of a sense of how the West was won. It just felt like that has to be in my first season. And Seascape is kind of obvious because you're an Albie. Yeah. You're an all be person. <laughs> well, I've directed a lot of Edwards' plays yeah. over yeah. the years. I've directed now eight of his plays, and yeah. I won a Tony for a revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. <laughs> yeah, so it was yeah. more or less obvious. Are you going to be directing more of his plays in uh, coming seasons? Yeah, perhaps. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, Edward has now passed away, but there was something so gratifying about being in the rehearsal hall to have his words around me. It, it felt like a dear friend, you know, and, and also, yeah, I will continue to be forever a fan of his. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if that shows up every once in a while. Are there any Albie plays that have not been produced that people are looking at, or are we seeing the full over of Albie plays? There are no, are there hidden plays that yeah. the estate will let go? No. No. In fact, I mean, I mean, Edward was very specific, you know, upon dying, he wanted some of that stuff burned. You know, he was working on a few plays, but they never got to a place where he would want to share them. He took care of that. There are some plays, though, that have been seldom produced. And I do think, like a lot of artists, that, you know, at times Edward was very prescient. And, you know, it's like like the plays that were sort of deemed in the early 80s, let's say, is like, oh, you go too far, angry man actually might very well speak to the tenor of the day. What about plays by Williams? Because the later plays by Williams never get produced. Yeah, that's right. That's right. A lesser known play by a great writer might very well be a very good play. And now we're going to talk about the current season. The first play has already had its run. That's Top Girls by Carol Churchill. Second play, Test Match by Kate Atwell. World premiere, but it had a reading in Portland in 2017, and it will be at Yale Rep next year. What brought you to this particular play? It's about cricket. I really wanted to direct a play in The Strand. You know, after being here one season, having just directed one play in the Geary, I wanted to experience what the other space was. And I also really wanted to direct a world premiere, in part because... I love working with playwrights. I love developing new work. And um, I read widely and I reached out to a lot of colleagues about what are some plays that, you know, that, that they love, but what for whatever reason their theater has yet to produce. And this was one of the plays that wound up, you know, on my desk. And I read it and immediately clicked with it. There's something, it's a play in three scenes. There is a contemporary scene, and then there's a play within a play where we time travel back to 1790, but the same cast has to act out sort of like the like the seeds of the sins of contemporary society. Cricket is used as a lens to investigate big history. It's used as a lens to investigate British colonialism in India. And when I started to really, you know, dive in, you know, I, I realized that cricket, while it's not a sport close to me, is actually the largest sport in the world. And it is the largest sport in the world because of the British Empire, you know, so 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 the two the two really do go hand in hand. You know, I I was also I was recently speaking to our wonderful lighting designer for Test Match, Marie Yokomaya, who's originally from Japan, and she also doesn't know much about cricket, but you know, sort of, uh, she grew up in Japan and she, you know, a little bit of Japanese American history after World War II, baseball was used. As a like a sort of as a little bit of diplomacy, but it's a little bit diplomacy in quotes because this is you know the victor saying this is the sport you should play. Well, three generations later, there's some amazing Japanese baseball players, and you know, and baseball is very much a Japanese sport. Thinking about sports and empire, 
is is really fascinating. I'm you know I'm a student of history. I'm I you know I'm excited to work with Kate Atwell, um, who has you know this incredibly big brain. She's playing with theatrical form. She's hopefully demanding of the audience of what systems are in place in your life, in your day-to-day life that you feel trapped by? How might you undo them? That's sort of what the play is about. When the play opens, what do we see? It is a contemporary scene. It's a rain delay of a world-class cricket match between Team England and Team India. I should also say this is women's cricket. Bursting through a door come six people, three women from each team, wet, wondering if they will actually finish the competition of the day. And there's small chat, you know, chit chat. There's, you know, who wants a cup of tea? There's perhaps like a cheating scheme that comes to the fore. There's great animosity. Um, And then we sort of hit an impasse in this contemporary scene among these six women. And the play, almost playwright acting as God, says, oh, we have to go back in time and figure out why everything is so messed up. And so we go back, second scene, to 1790, Fort William in Calcutta, The same actors, the six women, play six different roles and were both codifying the rules of cricket and were also kind of perpetrating genocide in, you know, in India. This is a big historical play. It peels the onion of history. Pam McKinnon, next play is Wakey Wakey by Will Eno. There's apparently a new curtain raiser for ACT and it stars... Tony Hale, who played the assistant on Veep, and he was really, really funny. Now, this play, he's in a wheelchair. For part of it. This is a play, I mean, I sort of actually liken it in theme to something like Thornton Wilder's Our Town, of it really investigates the preciousness of life, the present tense, how can you be made aware of your surroundings, what, you know, sort of that that moment of you know, trying to take in everything that is happening now, 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 now. And it's this 75-minute play. It is a two-character play, but Tony Hale plays definitely the primary character. We really get to know this man. And there is a lot of direct address. Also in that exploration of the present, he engages with the audience. Because it's a shorter play, and we're doing it at the Geary stage, I asked Will, an artist I've known for about 20 years, if we could commission him to write a short companion piece. And so he's written this beautiful 10 or 12 minute play that we call a curtain raiser. So it will be the kickoff story. And then it gets handed off to this other, this other Will Eno play. And in the curtain raiser, the second character, the more, you know, the more, um, supporting character, plays sort of the lead role. She's an educator. She's in a classroom setting. And Will, you know, has specifically written this for four of our third year MFA students. 
So it's a classroom setting with our actual students, with the more supporting character who ultimately steps into the man's life played by Tony Hale in the 75-minute play. And then part of what's also so delightful about Wakey Wakey is the playwright asks that the audience then stay behind and we serve refreshments and hopefully we continue to talk about the experience of the play. When it opens, we have this prequel and then we have Tony Hale in a wheelchair coming out. I believe he says something like, where am I? What he says is, is it now? I thought I had more time. Gloria by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, directed by Eric Ting of Cal Shakes. From what I can gather, it takes place at a magazine, which could be New York or The New Yorker, with millennials, and they're all vying for power, and suddenly something happens, and they have to deal with it. That's Is that right. pretty much it? That's right. That's right. It's a very ambitious office. It's a critique of office culture, a critique of present-day ambition, which some would say is lacking in direction or mentorship. It's almost like ambition for the sake of ambition. It's a very rapid fire, very funny, you know, in part cynical, in part like sort of searching for like, what is a cause? What is a cause? And then something, you're right, something happens. Something happens at the end of the first act. And then act two is a completely different emotional landscape because the story has shifted. And it becomes a story both for, I think, audience as well as for characters to when something out of the blue reorients your, you know, dare I say, biology, reorients what you thought was necessary into something else, how do you deal with it? And people deal with it in different ways. Some people deal with it by saying, well, that is mine now to capitalize on. Other people deal with that re reorientation moment as I need to commune with others who were there. I mean, so there's a wide array of results. How did you find it? Oh, this is a play that was a Pulitzer Prize finalist four years ago. So this is not about finding. This is about doing, ultimately. Like, the Bay Area deserves to see this play. Brandon is a MacArthur genius, grant winner. Every time he enters a play, he he chooses a different form. I mean, it's sort of like, like Carol Churchill. You know, she also, you can recognize her voice, but her plays... When you see them back to back to back, you go, whoa, this was written by the same person. And I feel Brandon has that same kind of incredible brain. Before we go on with the, the shows, uh, you're doing Christmas Carol again. Yeah. Is the uh, Pam McKinnon Christmas Carol going to be pretty much the Carrie Perloff Christmas Carol? Well, the Christmas Carol this season is Carrie's Christmas Carol. Ultimately, there will be a new Christmas Carol, but yeah, we need to raise money for that. Moving on, we have Tony Stone by Lydia R. Diamond. This is a play, from what I can gather, which came about because of Pam McKinnon. You discovered the story of this African-American woman who was in the Negro League? No, I wouldn't go that far. There is a, a wonderful book 
by Martha Ackman called Curveball, The Remarkable Story of Tony Stone. It's more than a biography. It's a real history. But of course, at the center is this amazing woman. And Tony, Tony with an I, was the first woman to play professional baseball at the tail end of the Negro Leagues. She's an African-American woman. And she, from age five or six, knew she was a baseball player and then manifested. She lived in the Bay Area for a lot of her life. She was born in the Twin Cities, but moved out to the Bay Area during World War II to find work, like a lot of African-Americans. Um, she worked in the docks. She worked in steel mills, but she always played baseball. And she always played baseball with boys and later men. So this book, a producer friend of mine read the book reached out to me, asked me to read the book, asked if I thought it was a play. And I said, I think it could be. And the producer friend, Samantha Berry, and I approached Lydia Diamond to write it. So that was more than seven years ago. And Lydia and I have been working on this play ever since. We did the world premiere production of it together just this last spring in New York at the Roundabout Theater. And we're producing it at ACT in cooperation with Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. this coming spring. Next play is Rocky Horror Show. Rocky Horror pops up every year or two somewhere in the Bay Area, most notably at Ray of Light. What about the ACT production is going to make it stand out from other productions? I'm really excited to pair Rocky Horror with the director-choreographer Sam Pinkleton, who, let's see, most recently in the Bay Area, he was the choreographer of Soft Power that played at the Curran that is right now playing at the Public Theater in New York. He and I worked together on a musical that actually started at Berkeley Rep about four years ago called Amelie. He was my choreographer. But I, I'm excited that Sam is going to be the director choreographer of this production. Sam has already been out to the Bay Area with this production in mind to engage with a number of community groups, to take in a lot of drag shows, to um, check out the cabaret scene. I'm really excited that Sam is stepping in and taking taking hold like the history of Rocky Horror in the Bay and honoring that DNA, pulling it forward, putting his Sam Pinkleton stamp on it. And I'm just excited that, you know, it's going to live at the scale of the Geary. This was a film that played at the Strand Theater. I'm excited for the vision of this particular artist to play this show that this city has an affinity for at the scale of the Geary. The final show, Poor Yellow Rednecks, Viet Gone Part 2. I love Part 1. It's a musical, rap musical story. And Part 1 talks about the refugees as they come over from Vietnam. And Part 2, I would assume, is about them here. Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, Queen Nguyen's, the playwrights. Um, it's biographical. And with each chapter, so this is chapter two of a trilogy that he's writing, it becomes more autobiographical. So this is a sequel to Viet Gong, hence Viet Gong Part Two, and it's called Poor Yellow Rednecks, a deliciously controversial title. This is the continuation from part one, the romance between his parents, to now six years later, his parents are married, live in a small city in Arkansas with 
that grandmother, well, now grandmother, because now Kui is in the play himself as a five-year-old, a kindergartner starting public school in a small city in Arkansas. If part one is an immigration story and a refugee story into America, part two is about that family, now Vietnamese American, with an American son, and who gets to own the American dream? What is the American dream? How does a young boy assimilate or not? What is his new relationship when he starts going to kindergarten with his grandmother who does not speak English? But the boy is now learning English at school. I mean, it's, it unpacks all this, you know, fantastic American, Vietnamese, refugee, immigrant, what is home, you know, and, 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 and also tensions within a marriage. It's also very much about a lower middle class, hard scrabble family getting by, filled with love, but sometimes life is hard. Was Jamie Castaneda the uh, director of the first one? That's right. So we're, so we're really pumping that sequel idea. So it's the same director, same composer, likely some of the same actors as well. That's that's the season for this year. One of the issues that I had with The Strand, because I love The Strand mm, yeah, as a yeah. theater, is the neighborhood has gotten worse and there's still very little in the way of eating around the area unless you get a sandwich at The Strand. Have you been working with the city on trying to deal with this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, when you say it's gotten worse, I mean, it's gotten better from when I started a year ago, certainly, even just in terms of there's now a hotel right across the corner from the Strand. I mean, there's a different kind of foot traffic. When I started a year ago, that BART stop was literally a, a construction site, and now that is a BART stop. And so it's no longer any kind of pinch point. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we have um, meetings with the city uh, weekly. It's a concern. I mean, I have not only patrons, but also employees, also students, you know, that work there and not just when there's a show going on, but, you know, we also have our costume shop there. It is an ongoing concern. I mean, I know that the evolution of that block and, you know, and that neighborhood, I hope is going in a positive, a positive way because we're committed to it. I love hearing that you love the theater and the strand and the scale of it is really exciting. And that lobby space is, you know, and we have a black box theater upstairs. All that is in play. All that is, you know, really exciting. But you're right that that sidewalk at times can be a challenge. As is trying to find food because yeah. there's very, very little around there to grab. There are a few actually nice restaurants, you know, with these hotels now on Market Street. They're also, I mean, there's Sam's Diner that is, you know, close to the Golden Gate. I mean, that's one block away, you know, down Market. They also now have the Farmer's Market is now three days a week at Civic Center. Also, the, the Asian Art Museum has a fantastic restaurant in it. And now after a year... Working at the Geary, do you think you have a handle on the use of choreography now? Because you're looking down on the stage, and that's kind of different from most of the theaters where you don't have that many balconies. Well, but the last decade of my career has been on Broadway, so... It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So I've, I've directed eight eight Broadway shows in these last 10 years. So that's that's actually the kind of playhouse that I've been working in. And The Strand has that depth which on the stage, which 
affords a lot of interesting things. Similar dimensions to a lot of off-Broadway playhouses that I work at. Do you ever think you'll use the roof, the black box, for an ACT production? Would love to. I think it's a beautiful black box. The dimensions of it are great, you know, height as well as, um, you know, sort of the the floor space. I mean, we obviously use it a lot for our MFA and young conservatory productions. As long as we're on a subscription model, it's hard to use such a small theater for truly a main stage show. But, you know, more and more, I look at the productions that are part of the conservatory training as ACT productions. We schedule them, pick them in concert with picking the main stage. And finally, Pam McKinnon, you talk a little about doing different shows over the coming years. How far are you into the following season now? Have you nailed down any shows for the uh, 2021 season? I wouldn't say we've nailed them down, but we definitely have a dreamy list. Part of the process is reading a lot and putting out feelers sort of over the course of the summer. And then in the early fall, we start to solidify maybe a couple of those. We also obviously have to do this in concert with budget planning, right? I can't just do anything. So here we are planning a budget. What what shows do we really, really need to do for whatever reason? Maybe, maybe you know, there's a story that celebrates a big anniversary or there's a big director who, you know, wants to do this and this is the time when she's available. Um, so a few of those will drop in. And then sort of over the course, yeah, over the course of the fall. So by end of December, mid-January, you know, it is solidified. And finally, politics is volatile in this country. When you're looking at that season, we don't know what's going to happen in 2020. So I guess you can't really plan except get a sense, but that must be a little rough. I think theater is inherently political. There's something about just the act of showing up as a group at 8 p.m. and a story is told that has conflict and resolution in it. I am leaning toward in the season 2020-2021 to have a lot of music because I think we're going to need a lot of healing. You've been listening to an interview with Pam McKinnon, who is the artistic director of ACT And for more information about ACT and the entire season, you can go to act-sf.org.